And so he's been doing that, but he's going to be here this morning sharing with us, giving an update. And so would you please give a one chapel welcome to Pastor Russ Walker. Well, good morning, everyone. Actually, it's afternoon now, right? Good, good afternoon, everyone. Oh, that was pathetic. Come on, do it again. Good afternoon, everyone. Oh, yes. Well, I've missed you. It's been three months since I've been back here in Austin. I'll share with that just a little bit. Why don't you get your Bibles out, if you would, please, and go to 1 John chapter 3. Clear at the end of your Bible before you get to the book of Revelation, 1 John chapter 3. You can also follow along on, on, on the screens. I'm going to read it out of the message here this afternoon, starting in verse 18. It says, my dear children, let's not just talk about love, let's practice real love. This is the only way we'll know we're living truly, living in God's reality. It's also the way to shut down debilitating self-criticism, even when there's something to it. For God is greater than our worried hearts and knows more about us than we do ourselves. And friends, once that's taken care of, we're no longer accusing or condemning ourselves. We're bold and free before God. We're able to stretch out our hands and receive what we ask for because we're doing what he said, doing what pleases him. Again, this is God's command, to believe in his personally named son, Jesus Christ. He told us to love each other in line with the original command. As we keep his commands, we live deeply and surely in him, and he lives in us. And this is how we experience his deep and abiding presence in us, by the spirit he gave us. I find this passage such an interesting set of verses because it describes something that I think most of us are aware of, and that is there's all of these different realities that are vying for our attention and our allegiance. You know what I'm talking about? There's the reality of what culture says. There's the reality of what your emotions say, the reality of your, what your thoughts say. There's the reality of what your hormones even say. There's the reality of what your friends and family say, and there's even the reality of what the devil says. There's all these different realities that are vying for our attention and for our allegiance, trying to get us to come in line with those ways of doing things. As, as Pastor Rob was describing here, and you may know this already, we adopted here at One Chapel a church in Lake Travis. And Pastor Ross has assigned me to be the community pastor out there. Kind of funny because I just got here from Wisconsin and uh, I'd been a, the lead pastor there in Wisconsin for 14 years and thought I was kind of coming out of the saddle. And then I'm here for a few months and he goes, nope, <laughs> back in you go. And so we've been out in Lake Travis for the last three months. So I've been preaching there for the last three months. So it's great to be back here with you and see so many faces that I have missed and and I just want to say thank you. You know, from my perspective, you all have made an enormous investment in these new communities that are being formed. You may not know this, but so many people who've been going to church here in Austin are now coming to Lake Travis or in Kyle. And so there's been a huge investment that you guys have made. And I know that can be challenging because three months ago, we were all just one church. And now all of a sudden, Pastor Ross is talking about multiplying one chapel and having these neighbor, network of neighborhood um, churches all over the place. And not only did we adopt a church three months ago, we also gave birth to a new church in Kyle, which means you're the oldest kid. <laughs> you guys were the oldest child in the one in chapel community and neighborhood of churches. How many of you are the oldest child in your own family? Any old, old kids here, the oldest child, all right? How many of you remember when your mom and dad decided to have another kid? <laughs> um, 
As soon as that happened, for those of you who are the oldest child, you know what that felt like. You may have not wanted that to happen because when you were the only child, you had your mom and dad's attention all to yourself. And the family ran around you and it, it functioned around who you are. And, and, uh, and so when another child came in on the scene, now you had to get used to that new family dynamic. Now all of a sudden you had to share mom and dad. Well, you know, it's the same way is true for churches. As the church, as one chapel continues to grow and to expand, what's happened is that we're no longer just one here. Now you have a family of churches and, and a family of people that you may not even have met yet, but hopefully you will soon as we continue to do things together. But that may not have been something that you wanted because now you got to share Pastor Ross. He's preaching down in Kyle, and you may think, ah, I don't, I don't want to hear Pastor Russ. He's close, Russ Ross, but there is a difference there. You know, so you have to share Pastor Ross and Miss Amy, and you have to share all of One Chapel's staff. Three months ago, we were all together, and so there's kind of a growth, a, a growing and a stretching, but I just want to say, from my perspective, thank you for being willing, whether you knew it or not, whether you're doing it um, intentionally or willingly, I just want to say thank you, because what's happening out in Lake Travis is a miracle of God. I can't say that strongly enough because here's the thing. When you adopt a child, it comes with a history. Any of you parents who've adopted children, you know what I'm talking about. Ado with adoption comes a history. And the same is true with the church. You know, the church that we just adopted three months ago um, was birthed 38 years ago. It's a 38-year-old church, and it has a history. And it's been a tumultuous history. It was birthed out of the heart of God. 38 years ago, there was a small group of people who got the heart of God, that God wanted to do something down on that 71 corridor between Bee Cave and Spicewood. And so they began to pray and take steps of faith, and out of that came this church. But over the last 38 years, it, this church has really been in the crossfire of the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness. And there have been a lot of victims as a result there have been four pastors prior to One Chapel taking, taking leadership of this church, four senior pastors. And under each one of these four senior pastors, there has been major sexual failure that's happened under each of these regimes. And so it all culminated in what was discovered over a year ago where the senior pastor was having a long-term affair with the secretary. And it got exposed and it just created devastation within the church. But I want to tell you something, just as the devil has been trying to work his will to destroy what God had intended all along, God has been moving in dramatic ways. And what has been de devastated, where there has been ashes, we're seeing beauty, we're seeing renewal, re all this restoration of things. And I think this is really important for us to understand because 38 years ago, when these people had the heart of God to start something, there was no way they could have known what would happen, what would be going on in that part of Austin today. There is so much growth that's happened in that area. And as a matter of fact, the projection is that there is going to be 11,000 new homes built in the next nine years around this church. 11,000 new homes. 
the Lake Travis School District estimates there's going to be 30,000 high schoolers that will go through the Lake Travis School District in the next 10 years. 30,000 high schoolers. There's no way that grouping of people who launched and stepped out in faith said, God, I'm willing. There's no way they could have known what was going to happen 38 years from that time they launched it. But God did, and so did the devil. And that's why he's been trying to thwart it and trying to victimize people after people, generation after generation. And this is what I'm talking about in terms of these realities. Every single day, there are these realities that are pressing in on our lives. There's the reality of what culture is trying to cram down our throats. There's a reality of your own thoughts and emotions and your own hormones that's trying to direct and determine your life. There's the reality of what your friends and family are trying to pressure you in to do. And there is the reality of what the devil is trying to accomplish to steal, kill, and destroy. But how many of you are thankful there's also God's reality? Amen. And that's what, that's what this verse is talking about. There's God's reality, which means we have a choice to make. Every single day, every single moment of the day, we have a choice to make because whose reality are you going to live your life by? Whose reality are you going to live your life by? It's a choice that we have to make. We've been doing a series around here called We Believe. And I was telling the first service that, you know, I think of all the different seasons that are happening and all the, the generations that have kind of come before us. This is an interesting generation in which we live. And it is important, it is imperative that we know what we believe and why we believe it. How many of you back in 2014 saw the movie Noah? Any of you see the movie Noah? Well, I have the trailer for it for you here this morning. So why don't you turn your attention to the screen. Let's watch this here together. corrupted this world and filled it with violence. So we must be destroyed. A great flood is coming. We build a vessel to hold the innocent. Mother! What is them? What do you want? Did you really think you could protect yourself from me in that? It's not protection from you. I have men at my back and you stand alone and defy me. I'm not alone. When they come, they will be desperate and there will be many. Snakes are coming too? All the crawls, all that slips. Remember, Noah. He chose you for a reason. Take the ark! Choice was in your hands, Noah.
So I remember when this movie was first coming out and there were all these articles about how Hollywood was going to be producing all these different movies and they were taking stories from the Bible because of the success of the Passion of the Christ and the Son of God. And so I heard so many people and so many Christians excited about these new movies that were going to be coming out, specifically this one here in No. But I'll never forget that Sunday after opening weekend, talking with so many people, and people were asking the question, was this scene in the Bible? Is, is, is that scene in the Bible? Is that a good depiction of what the, how the Bible describes the story of Noah? Well, the simple answer to all of that is, well, they did spell Noah's name right. (laughs) And there was a flood and there was a great big boat. But other than that, there is not much similar to what the Bible describes as the story of Noah. And the reason for that is because the, the producer and the creator of this movie has an agenda that's fully Gnostic. It is a counterfeit to what Scripture describes as the story of Noah. I want you to listen to this article from London's newspaper, The Independent. It says this, Noah director and self-professed atheist Darren Aronofsky has managed to make a secular film about a Bible figure, painting Noah as an environmentalist in a film that doesn't mention God once. Given that he is best known for Requiem for a Dream, Black Swan and the Wrestler, Aronofsky's decision to make an adventure epic from the Bible's most CGI friendly of events, Noah's flood was met with a collective, really, last year. To the delight of the atheist and the concern of the pious, however, Aronofsky's film is pushing an environmentalist environmentalist rather than a religious agenda. He described Noah to the Telegraph as the least biblical film ever made (laughs) and sees his protagonist, played by Russell Crowe, as the first environmentalist. The retelling has made some serious departures from biblical account of the event, and an earlier reviewer spotted the name of God is not spoken once during it. It has provoked an outcry from Christian groups, with Paramount being forced to put out a statement explaining it is inspired by the story of Noah and reiterating that artistic license has been taken. It added, helpfully, the biblical story of Noah can be found in the book of Genesis. And so it's true, the film Noah was never advertised as the Noah from the book of Genesis. It was never advertised as the Bible's Noah. It, it was never advertised like that. As a matter of fact, Aronofsky didn't have that in mind at all. He is, a, he is a self-proclaimed atheist, and he grew up in a very conservative Jewish home. And so throughout this movie, you see these really strong Jewish Kabbalah and Gnostic ideology spread throughout this entire movie. Now, in case you don't know what Jewish Kabbalah is or Gnosticism, let me try to explain both of those. First of all, Jewish Kabbalah is this. It's a set of esoteric teachings meant to explain the relationship between an unchanging, eternal, and mysterious God and the mortal and finite universe, that is, God's creation. Kabbalah seeks to define the nature of the universe and the human being, the nature and purpose of existence, and the various other ontological questions. It also presents methods to aid understanding of these concepts and thereby attain spiritual realization. And so that's Jewish Kabbalah. And if you've watched any of the news or media or or entertainment, but not Madonna actually made this ideology very, very popular about a decade or so ago. That's, That's Jewish Kabbalah. And then you have Gnosticism. And Gnosticism is this. It teaches that salvation is achieved through special knowledge. 
This knowledge usually deals with the individual's relationship to the transcendent being. This unknowable transcendent being is far too pure and perfect to have anything to do with the material universe which was considered evil. Therefore, this transcendent being generated lesser divinities or emanations. One of these emanations, wisdom, desired to know the unknowable transcendent being. Out of this erring desire, the demiurge, the evil god, was formed, and it was this evil god that created the universe. He, along with archons, fallen angels, kept the mortals in bondage in material matter and tried to prevent the pure spirit souls from ascending back to God after death of their physical bodies. Since, according to the Gnostics, matter is evil, deliverance from material form was attainable only through special knowledge revealed by special Gnostic teachers. That's Gnosticism. And what Gnosticism does, it really perverts all of Scripture. It turns it upside down. In other words, God is evil, and the serpent, Satan, is actually good. The serpent is the one that was trying to add knowledge to mankind. He is the good one. So Gnosticism just really perverts it. It just turns it upside down. And both Gnosticism and Jewish Kabbalah have been around for thousands of years. As a matter of fact, in the second and third centuries, both Gnosticism and, Jew and, and, and uh, Jewish Kabbalah severely threatened the existence of the Christian church. They were so strong during the second and third centuries that what ended up happening in 325 AD, the Roman Emperor Constantine created this council in Nicaea to try to counter this widening rift and this, all this heretical teaching that was infiltrating the church at that time. Now remember, back then, we're talking right around, right, right beginning, so first, second, third centuries, the average and the masses of people did not have scripture. They didn't have a Bible. So there was no way for them to turn to scripture to figure out what they were hearing and what they were t being taught was in line with biblical truth. And so unknowingly, they were being swayed by these heretical teachings and this humanistic philosophies that were so penetrating the church during that time. The Apostle Paul actually warned about this in Colossians chapter 2, verse 8. He says, See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world, rather than on Christ. Paul warned about it, but that's exactly what was happening in the second and third centuries. People were being swayed unknowingly by all this infiltration of these humanistic philosophies and these heretical teachings. And so out of the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD came the Nicene Creed. And everything about the Nicene Creed was there to try to stop the flow of heresy, and to establish this is what biblical truth is. How many of you are familiar with Nicene Creed? If you've been here at one chapel for very long, you should be very familiar with it because normally we recite it as part of our worship. Well, I have it here on the screen, so why don't we go ahead and do it in case you already feel lost since we didn't do it in worship. Let's say it here together. Here we go. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven, was incarnate of the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, and became truly human. 
For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son is worshiped and glorified, who was spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy, worldwide, and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. So that's the Nicene Creed. Again, if you've been around here at One Chapel, it's something that we proclaim and declare every single Sunday. But the thing that was happening in, in the 17th, back in the, second, in the second and third centuries was that this was being used to try to counter this overwhelming flood of deception that was happening within the church. This, was, this, this creed helped, helped turn that tide of deception that almost caused the Christian church to completely cease from existence. Because again, remember, the vast majority of people, they didn't have Bibles. But they, yet they could come to church like this on a Sunday, and they could recite and declare these biblical truths therein being able to ground themselves in truth. So they may not have known what Scripture said. They didn't have the Bible in their hands, but they knew the creed, and they could declare it. They could recite it, and it helped ground them in truth in a, in a culture of deception, in a culture of counterfeits. What's interesting to me is that 1,700 years later, in spite of the fact that the average Christian now owns 4.4 Bibles, the same thing is happening again today. We're, we're coming under a deluge of all sorts of counterfeits and deceptions of heretical teachings and humanistic philosophies. They are increasing within the church. But yet we have the Bible at our hands. We can access it 24-7. The average Christian, again, has 4.4 Bibles. So it's not because we don't have access. The question is, what are we doing with it? Because the same deceptions, the same ideologies, the same philosophies are, are, are really coming into the church. They're coming all, they're all around us in our culture. And I think this movie Noah exposes something. When it came out, it was very, to me very enlightening to watch the Christian church's response to it. Because I think it was exposing something that's happening in the average Christian's life here in our country. And that is Hollywood, they can use a famous actor like Russell Crowe. And they can choose a biblical character and put it up on a big screen. And it can be filled with Jewish cabal and Gnostic, all sorts of Gnostic ideology. And the average Christian does, isn't even aware of it. The average Christian will go to a movie like that and think this is a great movie. Look at it. They're, they're, they're unaware. The average Christian is unaware of that it's filled with all this humanistic philosophy and all this heretical teachings that's been crammed down our throats and we just kind of accept it, and we even endorse it. I think he exposed something going on in the Christian world here today. And Jesus warned us about this. In Matthew chapter 24, verse 4, it says, Jesus answered, watch out that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name claiming I am the Christ, 
and will deceive many. Verse 10, at that time many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other, and many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. And verse 23, at that time if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it, for false Christs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and miracles to deceive even the elect, if that were possible. Look what Jesus was saying. Jesus was saying the closer and closer that we get to the end times, there's going to be more and more deception and more and more counterfeits. And how many of you know we're getting closer and closer to the end times? Which means right now you are surrounded by deception. You are surrounded by counterfeits. And so the question is, who are you listening to? Who are you listening to? What are you embracing it's really important for us to understand because the only insurance against counterfeits is to immerse yourself in truth. That's the only insurance. The only insurance to counterfeits and deception is to immerse yourself in truth. The more you surround yourself in truth, the more you'll be able to discern counterfeits because the power of deception is you don't know you're being deceived. Right? Come on. The power of deception is we don't know we're being deceived. So the only way we're going to be aware of deception, the only way you're going to be aware of counterfeits is that you've got to surround yourself in truth. So look again at that second section of the Nicene Creed. It says, we believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made for us and for our salvation. He came down from heaven, was incarnate of the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, and became truly human. For our sake he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. Now remember, each one of these biblically sound statements were created to intentionally counter all the heretical teachings and humanistic philosophies that were infiltrating the church. And so let's look at these, let's dissect these just a little bit. The first phrase is, we believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ. In Acts chapter 2, it describes, this is after Jesus' death and his resurrection, his ascension. And Jesus had told the disciples before he ascended back to heaven, he said, wait here in Jerusalem until the power of the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And when the power of the Holy Spirit comes upon you, then you'll be able to be my witnesses, to be able to witness and bear, bear witness to all that I've done. It'll make sense to you, and you'll be able to proclaim that and declare it to all men and women from here on out. And so that's exactly what happened. The power of God came on those first followers of Jesus Christ, and major things happened. One of the things that happened was a sound began to reverberate through the city, and it drew all these thousands of people together. And so as people were looking at these first disciples, wondering what strangeness was happening with these disciples, Peter stands up, the very man who had denied Jesus three times just a few months earlier, stood up and began to declare this truth. Listen to what he says in verse 22. Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him. As you yourselves know, this man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad, and my tongue rejoices, my body will live in hope, because you will not abandon me to the grave nor will you let your Holy One see decay. 
You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. Brothers, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried. And his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him an oath that he would would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was ahead, he spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to the grave, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of the fact. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. If you're taking notes, I want you to underline the word Lord. The word Lord in the original Greek language is the word kurios, which means supreme in authority, master. Supreme in authority, master. And so what Peter was describing here is that Jesus wasn't just uh, an ordinary man who did extraordinary things. That's not who he is. That's not who Jesus is. This is what Peter was trying to explain. Jesus is Lord and Christ. In other words, there is none like him. David wasn't even close to being like him. This, this patriarch of the Jewish faith, David wasn't even close like him because Jesus, only Jesus is Lord. The Apostle Paul said it this way in Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 9. It says, Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that's above every name. That in the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord through the glory of God the Father. There's the word Lord again. So when we make this declaration, we believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, what we're doing is we're reinforcing the fact, the biblical truth, that there is only one Lord. There's only one who's supreme in authority. There's only one master, and his name is Jesus Christ. Look at the second phrase. The only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made. Probably the most famous scripture in the Bible, whether you've been to church or not, you've seen it if you've gone to football games, it's probably the most famous scripture, John 3.16. Say it with me. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Underline the phrase, his one and only son. His one and only son. Because here's the thing. Most people in the world from times past till today believe that Jesus existed As a matter of fact, it's hard to disprove that he existed because it's a historical fact. You know, so it's impossible to ignore the fact that he existed. But what people believe is that he was a good man. He was a good teacher. He was was a good leader. He was a holy man. He was was some sort of prophet. But that's where they tend to stop. Because where most people struggle is this issue of, is he God? Is he God? divine? Is he the one? Is he God coming in the flesh? This is where people struggle with, but look at how Jesus himself described this. In John chapter 10, verse 24, it says, the Jews gathered around him saying, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. 
Jesus answered, I did tell you, but you do not believe. The miracles I do in my Father's name speak for me, but you do not believe because you're not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Again, the Jews picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus said to them, I have shown you many great miracles from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? We are not stoning you for any of these, replied the Jews, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. You see what Jesus was doing? Jesus himself said, I am God. Jesus said, I am God. The Father and I are one. The Apostle Paul referred to this in Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 6. He said, Who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in the appearance of man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. Therefore, we read it already, God has highly exalted him and gave him the name which is above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and those on earth and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. See, one of the non-negotiables of Christianity is that we believe that Jesus is fully God. That's one of the non-negotiables, that Jesus is fully God, that he was perfect, that he was without sin. He wasn't just another great teacher. He wasn't just another great leader. He wasn't just another great philosopher, but he is the promised Messiah. He is the Son of God. And this is where so many people struggle. Oh, yeah, Jesus existed, but is he truly God? C.S. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, said it this way. I love this. He said, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. And so when we're making this declaration, the Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father, through him all things were made. When we're making that declaration, what we're reinforcing inside of us and what we're declaring is that Jesus is God. Jesus is God. And let me just tell you something, folks. There are so many voices out there that are challenging that that are making Jesus equal with all sorts of other different people and all other sorts of different authorities. That is something that's infiltrating our church again today. That's who Jesus is, God. That's who he is. And then the third phrase is this. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven, was incarnate of the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, and became truly human. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. In Acts chapter 3, we see the story. Again, this is after um, Jesus' death and resurrection, after his ascension. The power of God came upon those disciples. And we see this story in Acts chapter um, 3 where Peter and John are going to the temple and God's power works through them. And healing comes through this crippled man who had been begging in front of this temple. And you would think as a result of this incredible miracle, everybody had seen this guy at the temple. He'd been, he'd been since a little age, he'd been begging there at the temple. So everybody knew him. So you would think that this miracle coming to this crippled man would have been a time of celebration. 
But that's not what happened. The leaders in Jerusalem, the religious leaders of Jerusalem, had, had Peter and John arrested and thrown into jail. And in chapter 4, we see Peter and John's response to this inquisition. Look at this, starting in verse 7. I want to read it to you out of the Amplified Bible. It says, When they had put the men in front of them, they repeatedly asked, By what sort of power or in what name, that is, by what kind of authority, did you do this healing? Then Peter, filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, members of the Sanhedrin and the Jewish high court, if we are being put on trial today to interrogate us for a good deed done to benefit a disabled man, as to how this man has been restored to health, let it be known and clearly understood by all of you and by all the people of Israel that in the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you demanded be crucified by the Romans and whom God raised from the dead, in this name, that is, by the authority and power of Jesus, this man stands here before you in good health. This Jesus is the stone which was despised and rejected by you, the builders by which became, became the chief cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that's been given among people by which we must be saved, for God has provided the world no alternative for salvation. If you're taking notes, underline the word saved. That word saved in the original Greek language is the word sozo, which means this to deliver, to protect, to heal, to preserve, to redeem, to make or to be whole. So listen to, what, listen to what Peter was saying. He said, there is no other name by which you can be delivered. There is no other name by which you can be protected. There's no other name by which you can be healed. There's no other name by which you can be preserved and redeemed. There's no other name that can make you be and make you whole. It's only Jesus. Jesus is the only one who can save you. I love how Max Licato describes this. He says, if our greatest need had been information, God would have sent an educator. If our greatest need had been technology, God would have sent us a scientist. If our greatest need had been money, God would have sent us an economist. If our greatest need had been entertainment, God would have sent us an artist. If our greatest need had been political stability, God would have sent us a politician. If our greatest need had been health, God would have sent us a doctor. But since our greatest need was forgiveness, God sent us a Savior. See, folks, this is who Jesus is. This is who he is. And there is no salvation in anyone else. Muhammad can't save you. Buddha can't save you. Hare Krishna can't save you. The Pope can't save you. A church one chapel can't save you. Your good works cannot save you. Only Jesus can save you. And so when we're making this declaration, we're realizing and proclaiming only Jesus can save you. Only salvation can come through Jesus. It's only him. 1,700 years ago, people struggled understanding who Jesus is. And you know what? The same is still true today. People are still struggling trying to understand who is this Jesus. But I fully agree with C.S. Lewis and that there really are only three options. If you're going to try to discover who Jesus is, there's only three options. Now, either he is a liar or he's a lunatic or he truly is Lord. That's really it. You can't fit him in any other category if you're really going to search this Jesus out. Either he's a liar or he's a lunatic or Jesus really is Lord. It's your choice. Who, what are you going to choose? Who are you going to say that Jesus is? Which reality are you going to live your life by? 
I think now, more than any other time in my life, it is time you better know what you believe. And you better know why you believe it. Because there is deceptions and counterfeits all around us even now. And the power of deception, you don't know you're being deceived. The only way that you're going to insulate yourself from deception and counterfeits is to immerse yourself in truth. That's why your Bible should be the most precious thing you own. Not because it's put on a shelf that you think is beautiful, but that it's worn and torn because you're reading it over and over and over and over again. You're immersing yourself in truth. And when we come here together and we declare this Nicene Creed, we're reinforcing these biblical truths in our lives so you have something that's going to ground you. I want to ask you just to close your eyes here, if you would, please. Because, you know, maybe this morning, you've been having all of these different realities that's been contending for your attention. And you've been trying to figure out this Jesus thing. Maybe when you were younger, it seemed clear and it seemed simple. And maybe you even had some sort of relationship with God because of Jesus. But maybe life has distracted you and all these other voices and all these other different realities have just been pressing in on you. But maybe here this afternoon, maybe God's reality has been centering your heart and all of a sudden, understanding is coming to your soul. And you are seeing things differently. You're seeing all this different stuff that's been vying for your attention, that's been warring for your life. And all of a sudden, you're confronted with, all right, what am I gonna do with this Jesus? Am I really going to embrace him as being Lord? as being the Son of God, as being the only one who can save me. I want to just lead you here this morning. I want to pray with you here today. Whether this is the first time you've prayed something like this or maybe the first time in a long time or maybe it's something that just needs to be kind of reinforced for you here today. I want to just ask everybody here just to pray this out loud. I'm going to lead you here in a prayer. I want to just ask you just to pray this out loud. Say, say God, Everybody say, God, I want to be a part of your reality. I want to be a part of this adventure that you have for my life. And so today, I commit my life to you. I turn over the steering wheel of my life to you. God, you said that anyone who calls on the name of Jesus will be saved. So I'm calling on you, Jesus, today. I'm calling on you today. And I believe, God, that you sent Jesus to die for my sins and to take my place. And I believe that you raised him up from the dead. And so now, I'm asking that you would raise me up. I'm asking that you would fill me up with your spirit. And I'm asking that you give me eyes to not just see, but to perceive your reality. And I'm asking that you would give me ears to not just hear, 
but to understand what you're doing. Father, thank you for taking over my life and involving me in your reality. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to take communion here together.